This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. We've had magazine owners on before when we interviewed Matt and Christine, who recently purchased Business NH Magazine from their prior employer. But today, we're marking a first for The Granite Beat by interviewing our first magazine writer. Bill Donahue lives in the Lakes region of New Hampshire and writes exclusively for magazines. He's been in journalism since 1987, and his assignments have taken him all over the globe, including multiple trips into the Arctic Circle. Our plan for talking with Bill today was to discuss an article about a small New Hampshire pond and the people, himself included, who believe they have the best vision of how to manage it. That article will be published in the May-June issue of Yankee. However, our plan was derailed by some exciting events yesterday in Boston, so that's where we'll start. Like you, Bill, I can't wait to talk about the story you wrote for Runner's World. But first, let's set the table a bit for our listeners. Could you tell us when you realized that you wanted to be a writer, what attracted you to journalism, and how you decided to uh, specialize in magazine writing? My mother was a writer. My grandfather was a writer. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I wrote for my paper in college, but I didn't think I was going to be a writer, actually. Uh, I thought I was going to be an English professor, and uh, I finished college and just started freelancing. My thought was I was going to do that for a little while and then go to grad school, and I just really loved it, so I stuck with it. I mean... That was a long time ago, 1987, and I just started uh, following a story, and one story led to another, and I guess I'm still doing it. But to say that I exclusively write for magazines would, would not really be or be the case. I mean, trying to write a book proposal now, I've written a lot of things for newspapers, uh, but... Yeah, it is true that mostly what I've done is, is writing for magazines. When we have new reporters, we sometimes tell them a fable about a rookie who was sent to cover a celebrity wedding, only to return and say, there's no story, the groom never showed up, and the bride was left at the altar. The moral of that story is, there's always a story, but it isn't always the one you were sent to get. I was reminded of this lesson when I heard the background behind your story published in Runner's World in April. Would you do the honors of bringing our listeners up to speed? Okay, but I guess I want to first tell you that I did go to a celebrity wedding one time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I was in, I was in uh, Bolivia, and I was doing a story for Men's Journal magazine about this guy who was a, kind of a galoot. He was an American rancher. He started a ranch there, really didn't know what he was doing. You're a young guy, 27 or something, and anyway, he was sort of handsome. He became Mr. Bolivia, and then he married Miss Bolivia, and I went to their wedding, and all the all the Bolivian paparazzi were there, and weirdly, my fellow, uh, my photographer, the photographer I was with, he and I were the only press invited to the wedding. We were the, we were guests at the wedding, so we had to walk through a throng of reporters that were just sticking cameras in our face and so on but yeah so the background of the story uh the Kenyan story yeah yeah so well it really started I went to Kenya to report two stories one of them was about cycling one was about running 
I'm I'm a cyclist, avid amateur. I was in a bike race last summer, the Vermont Overland, a gravel race. Finished the race. I'm standing there uh, in the beer line. A guy was standing there. Another guy was there. I asked him, how'd you do in the race? He's like, I won the race. He was from Kenya, which is sort of a historic moment. It was one of the first times a black rider had won a major American gravel race. So, but then I later found out that his teammate had died in the race. So it was very sad. And they were from a a team, a team called Team Amani. I ended up going to Kenya to report a story about this team for Bicycling Magazine. But my editor, she also is affiliated with Runner's World, both are published by Hearst, asked me to do a story about Kip, Elliot Kipchoge, the legendary great of running, marathon world record holder. Anyway, I went there, went to his village. I was very much shut out. I didn't get access. So I said, well... There's this other guy here. He won the Boston Marathon last year. His name is Evans Chibet, and his training camp is like a mile from my hotel. I called this publicist. You know, nobody ever wanted to talk to Evans Chibet, so I was able to just, you know, skip over there, went right in. He was very generous with his time, and I wrote a story where I was like, uh, you know, he might be Kipchoge, and then I sent it out on, uh, to all my friends. I said, this is the guy who's going to be Kipchoge. And then he did beat Kipchoge yesterday. So it's very gratifying to, to see my predictions come true. And if you need any betting tips for the Kentucky Derby, I'm, I'm here to help you. So did you really believe that he was going to win? Well, of course, I didn't know. But what I did know is that there was a, a ton of hype around Kipchoge. And a couple things. Yes, He's the world record holder. He's the only person ever to go under two for the marathon. But he's a human being, and he's 38. He's not that young. Uh, all these other guys, you know, Evans Chibet, his training partner, Benson Capruto, et cetera, et cetera, they are right on his heels. So if you talk to the average person on the street in Boston yesterday, they probably thought Kipchoge was going to win by 20 minutes. I think anybody in the know knew that the race was up for grabs. I'm curious by the difference in media treatment between Evans and and Kipchoge. Are, do you have an explanation for why there's such fascination with one, but the other one was so under the radar? Well, I mean, Kipchoge has, has scored, you know, he's scored more flashy wins. You know, he's ha- he has the world record. He went under two hours. He's also a kind of a wise man you know he reads uh plato and socrates and he he always speaks in these sort of zen cones you know like uh somebody asked him in advance of the race what kind of weather do you want he said we will all be running in the same weather and uh you know he he kind of reduces everything to this sort of wise thing but you know um and evans chibet is uh, he's not fluent in english He's not, Kipchoge is a, is a intricate character, you know, and Evan Chivet is just a guy who, very low-key, very laid back, and very friendly. He's known by some people in the running circles there. Uh, I, I was told, oh, he has a lot of fans in Capsabet. That's like, you know, 80,000 people. That's not the whole world. So, uh yeah, he's just not known. You know, it's. I think it's very. It's very hard for Americans 
to wrap their mind around more than one Kenyan, I think. Uh, and that's a sad thing. I mean, every one of these guys is different from another. And yeah, it was a shame that people didn't know him. So I was really happy to sort of introduce him to, to readers. Do you think that's going to change for him now that he's repeated back-to-back with Boston? You got to think that people are going to start to say, like, who is this guy? I mean, he, 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 not, he won. It, it went like this. He won Boston last year. He won New York in the fall. And then he won Boston this year. So it's pretty unbelievable. And uh, yeah, you would like to think that people will start to know who he is. Do I think he's going to become this sort of sage that we've turned Kipchoge into? I don't think it's possible. He's he's a very unassuming guy. And I, I think it'll be difficult for Americans to fully kind of grasp this guy who comes from a very remote village in Kenya where they he doesn't he didn't grow up with running water or with electricity, sort of the top of this mountain. Uh, he didn't have shoes, really, when he was running as a kid. He was the eighth of ninth, nine children. It's a reality so remote from the average American that I would love to think that we would get to know him, but I, I think it's a pro- it's going to be a process. You know, that that's a problem with our media, certainly magazines, these sports magazines, for a long time, you would try to profile somebody like Evans Chibet. They'd be, no, we can't do that. American readers will never relate to him. You know, so we have this exclusionary mindset and it is ending, it's breaking, but it's a long process, I think. Do you think that resistance was correct? Do you think that our editors were correct to say that readers wouldn't relate? Or do you think that readers would relate to someone even if they had such a a disparate experience? Well, I mean, this is a really political question, but I mean, I think for a long time in this country, we, you don't see people of color. There's this idea of visibility. And if something like a a magazine is a, a way to sort of define the public narrative, and if they're constantly saying, Hey, we don't want to run profiles of these, these guys, well, yeah, then we'll never understand them. But it's changing. And, and I think, yeah, people are capable of understanding them. You know, it just, it just, it takes a long time. And it takes, it takes, I think, also an effort on the part of readers to cross that chasm and try to, under, to, to understand somebody who's different than them. Well, in the spirit of crossing that chasm, I'd like to ask you my next question. Uh, I'm someone who's worked in the same state that I've lived in since I was 10, and I'm fascinated by the challenge of traveling to a distant land and coming away with a kind of story that you can only get after establishing rapport and trust with uh, the people that you're sent there to, to interview. How do you do that? How does that work? How do you develop that sort of those relationships? We kind of think of it as parachuting in sometimes. And what do you do when it doesn't work? Uh, well, how do I do it? I mean, I think uh, you have to start with some sort of realistic understandings. I mean, in a place like Kenya, it's not like I'm going to blend in. You know, I'm a, a white guy. I'm pretty tall. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's evident right away that I don't know what's going on. And that's okay. You know, I mean, I think if people... If you go there and you demonstrate that you're genuinely curious 
and you're in, very earnest about trying to learn what they're all about, what their culture is, what their daily life is. I think most people want to tell their story. And so I think, you know, that would be my main thing. My, I guess my tactic at bottom is to have no tactic. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm generally a pretty unrehearsed person and kind of like I was losing things and my hair's never in straight and stuff. And that's just what I'm bringing to the table. And I don't know. At some level, I think that that that's better. I mean, if you throw, showed up in a three-piece suit, they would just be like, who is this person, you know? But I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, you have to relate to people on a human level. And, you know, everybody wants to know who you are, what your family is, what you're all about. So, you know, bring pictures, bring little gifts. And another thing is like, every place has its own social milieu, you know, its own like power structure and stuff like that. And you kind of have to figure out what that is and how to work it. And that, that really entails working with local people. I mean, you know, tr interpreters, you know, just for example, when I was trying to write about Kipchoge, I was talking to people, many people through an interpreter who, who Swahili, and he was affiliated with this university about 10 miles from Kipchoge's village, but he did not deem himself a worthy guide in the village. So... In addition to working with him, we had to get a, a guide in the village who knew the local people and could like say, hey, you know, Bob, come talk to us. So it's like, there's kind of like, you really have to, there's like layers of access you have to penetrate. Do you have those contacts or at least some contacts set up before you arrive? Or do you have to invent them while you're on the ground? Well, yeah, you usually go with a few contacts, but then like when you're there, it's just like the interpreter, I'm just thinking of the interpreter I was working with going into Kipchoge's village. He had a motorcycle. So we're riding around, like I'm on the back of his motorcycle and we're just like going here, going there, go talk to this person, talk to this person. He knows we're, we're just kind of make these connections. We're making calls. So it, it was constantly, it's like that, you know, you, 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 you have some level of access, but you got to like, when you get there, that's when you have to work your way in. I mean, that, that, that's like if you're working at the level of talking to people who live in villages. I mean, if you're talking to like the secretary of tourism or something, like you have to like set it up in advance. It's all, it's all over the phone and email, but yeah. Once in a while, you turn your focus closer to home and write about some of the dynamics of life in a small, historic, rural New England town. Uh, particularly through the eyes of someone who sticks out a bit, even though, as you write in some of these pieces, your family's been in this town for three generations, maybe even more. Do you like sticking out, as you were described in the Yankee article, as a Sid Vicious type? Or do you ever wish you could be more of a townie? Well, do I like it? Uh, why do you... Uh, I guess... I guess you think I'm a Sid Vicious type? I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> well, if someone just, well, I wouldn't have picked that as, I seem more a Joe Strummer. Uh, a, but, a, friend, um, a friend of mine said that, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I don't wake up and look for ways to stand out. Uh, you know, 
and I really do also, I mean, I live in Gilmerton. I don't know if we mentioned that, but I mean, I, I also really love getting along with my neighbors and, you know, the, I, I think the, the main thrust of my experience of living in this town is like going to the post office, going to the dump and, you know, seeing people chatting with them. That's, that's what makes you want to live in a small town. That's, that's the beauty of it. But, you know, the downside is, uh, everybody's unique. Everybody in some way stands out and everybody knows one another's business. So I guess they know mine. And, uh, Sometimes it, it, it tends towards the Sid Vicious column, I guess. But The Yankee article published to be published in the May issue, that was a, a really fun one to read. It, it really it rang true for me as someone who, I don't live in the same town, but a very similar town, about how you can kind of get these microcosms of democracy and society, and there's class and, and generation differences and each kind of group thinks that they have divine right toward the resources that are at hand. Do you find it more difficult or less difficult or a different kind of a challenge to re- report on, to write about the things that are happening in your own town versus something that might be happening on a different continent? Well, I guess just to give people some context. So the story in Yankee uh, accounts my run for president of a small beach club in rural New Hampshire. We won't name the pond in question or the name of the club, but it recounts that bid. That story really didn't take a lot of reporting. It was sort of an essay about my experience. Yeah, I did another story. This would have been in 2021 for the Washington Post magazine, where I hosted a Black Lives Matter rally on the green here in the town. Numerous people did not like this and made critical comments on Facebook. And then the premise of the story is that I taught, I I went and sought out interviews with those people or with their allies. And so you're asking me, do I use a different approach? Do you find it more challenging, less challenging, or a different kind of a challenge? than, you know, parachuting into, you know, mountaintop village in Kenya to try and talk to people that are completely different from you? Well, I guess one lesson I've encountered in traveling around places is like whether or not you're different from someone is, is not necessarily determined by their geography. Like people next door might be way more different than me than someone who lives in, you know, Kenya or France or whatever. So actually, the people who I interviewed in my town were like diametrically opposed to me in their politics. So they were quite different. And so were the people in Kenya, but in very different ways. So I guess it's, it's, uh, you have to feel it out every, every time, you know, I never go like, I go to interview people, but I never go like, with a list of 10 questions and that's it. It's, it's a conversation and you just have to kind of ask questions and see where it goes, I guess. And how do you find living in the same community as somebody who you've interviewed and included in a piece that you've written for a magazine? Does that change the dynamic between you and your neighbors once they've been included in your writing? 
Well, I guess to be clear, I mean, I've written about this town. I've written just a few stories, maybe, I don't know, maybe five or something. Yeah, I mean, it can change. I mean, notably, like I wrote a story for Backpacker Magazine. It was a profile of a very good friend of mine who, he's a few years older than me, but we kind of grew up together and he's now one of the most prominent bushwhackers in the White Mountains. And it was a very admiring story and uh, we're still good friends, you know. Um, Yeah, some people I've written about, they didn't like it and they probably want to talk to me and... That's a sad thing, but I guess that is uh, the way of journalism sometimes. I think H.L. Mencken said, a newspaper has no friends. <laughs> something something to that effect, yeah. So, you know, I, I it's, it's, it's an unfortunate consequence sometimes, but it does happen. Did you consider that possible outcome before taking the assignment or pitching the assignment, or did you figure you'd just let the chips fall where they would. Yeah, I mean, every assignment I take, I mean, I, I, there's probably some level of risk and I weigh it, you know. I, yeah, I, I guess, I, guess I, I have some fairly strong sense of myself as a journalist and this is what I do and it's not like everybody's going to like it and that's how it is. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm curious as to how you come up, come upon your assignments. Do you pitch them? Do you get editors who reach out to you with a story assignment that they'd like to have someone cover? Well, I, I get stories both ways. Generally, the stories that I am most excited about are the ones I come up with myself. But sometimes I get calls and, you know, I end up doing a story that is more interesting than I thought at first. And then, you know, sometimes as well, well, you could see with the story about Evans Tibet that that was came out of a sort of a, a conversation. So, you know, that that's another uh, way in which a story can emerge. Do you have any advice for um, for people that are getting that are interested in getting into this uh, line of work? What, what do they say in that movie, The Graduate? Go into plastics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. I will say that, you know, the, the, the sort of space that I'm in, which is uh, freelance journalist, journalism, mainly for magazines and, and websites, um, it's a shrinking market. I, and that's, it's tough. Uh, but I do feel that people still want to hear stories. I, I, would, I would say if I was doing this again, I would really look at a multimedia approach. I mean, you want to be able to do podcasts, you want to be able to write, maybe do things for radio, you have to have versatility. And I think you also just have to be an entrepreneur and always be looking at ways that you can sort of churn the things around you into marketable stories. It's a little mercenary enterprise in that way. Uh, can you say what you what you meant by that? I'm not quite sure if I follow. Well, for example, you know, my mother died in 2017, and I figured out what to write about it, and then I sold the story. <laughs> and you could be like, "Well, that's horrible," you know. You you sold, you know, the, you know, the your 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 family jewels or something. But 
you know, it was a story very favorable to my mother and, you know, she probably would have liked it. <laughs> um, but my point is you always have to look at what's the stuff around you and wonder what's the story there? How could I sell it? Where could I sell it? You mentioned the, the markets uh, kind of shrinking. Do you see it changing in any other noticeable ways? Um, is it more interested in certain types of stories that maybe it wasn't that you couldn't sell uh, maybe 20 years ago? Or do you see a direction that the market's heading it toward? Well, I think it's becoming much more inclusive, you know. And uh, like, as I was saying earlier, I mean, stories about people of color, by people of color, those were just sort of not on the table 20, 30 years ago. And I think that's a really good development, even if for me, it's, you know, I'm an old white guy. It's not, not the greatest thing, you know, for my, my brand, but it has to happen. And uh, so that's a really good thing. Uh, what else is happening? Eh, I don't know. I, I, I think there's, it's just, there's always been this mentality that it's hard to sell big stories. You know, people, a magazine like Runner's World, for example, their bread and butter is like, you know, five ways to run a faster 5K, you know, the best 10 shoes out there for under $120. And, you know, but when you become a writer, what you want to do is tell the big stories. And so there's always this idea that, oh, those are those are not going to happen. But you always have to fight against that. And uh, I think everybody I know who's in this industry is engaged in that fight, and I, I don't think I don't think the taste for stories is go, going to go away. But despite the rumors, <laughs> you mentioned your um, your grandmother kind of preceding you in this line of work, and you've chosen to honor her by naming your arts center program after her. Could you tell us how the Scriven Arts Center came about and uh, what the idea behind it is? Okay, well. Just one small thing. My my grandmother was my mother was a writer. My grandmother wasn't really, but but my so well. I live in this house in Gilmanton that my grandmother used to live in, and uh, she was kind of a a life of the party kind of person. Always hosted events here. So anyway, I decided that uh, I wanted to um, start hosting cultural events in the barn every summer. I do probably four every year. And for example, you know, we, we've had a local filmmaker who Adam wrote about very elegantly last year. Uh, Mark Dole uh, came. We've had, uh, you know, poets. We've had uh, a, a, like a, we had a true crime writer last year and they come and they'll talk about their work. They'll, they'll might show some slides probably make a presentation of half an hour, 45 minutes, and then there'll be a lot of questions. And these events are always uh, free to the public. And how do you get people to come and do them? Uh, you know, just uh, kind of appeal to the idea that this is happening in an old New England barn. And, you know, it's you're, it's, uh, you're appealing to this, like, very uh, idealized idea of New England that we're going to get together and talk about things kind of like Norman Walkwell's painting of uh, freedom of speech or something. 
Yeah, you know, some people I get to come are friends of mine. And, you know, another thing about it, too, is that uh, we give people a chance to kind of explain about their work or who they are in ways that they might not otherwise get. Like one guy we had one time was, uh, he's been written up in the Laconia Sun many times, was uh, Kale Poland, who's kind of a, a local fitness guru. He's got a very unique take on fitness, which is kind of involves like, uh, you know, pulling spare tires around. And, you know, it's it's a very backwoods kind of uh, mentality. And uh, he's funny about it. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not like he's giving lectures all the time. So I was like, hey, Kale, man, you can give a lecture. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. So kind of sounds a bit like the same reason why people will talk to you when you arrive at some remote village on the other side of the world. They just... Maybe, maybe. Yeah, people want to tell their story, I think, you know. Yeah, I mean, for sure people have turned me down and they're like, you know, I got to make a living doing what I do. And I for sure understand that. And, you know, and the reality is sometimes we do pay people, you know, pass the hat. Some people have gotten, you know, $300 to come and speak. So it's, uh, you know, you're not going to retire on it. And you're planning a, a season for this coming summer? I am, yeah. Although I should say I don't know yet who's coming. and It's in the works. Are you working on writing any stories that you would like to preview for our listeners? Well, yeah. I'm writing a story about a murder that I was tangentially involved in in 1987. When I, right after I finished college, I moved to Portland, Oregon. And... Uh, there was a homeless guy that, that was coming around on our street. And I, a friend of mine who lived on the street started chasing him away with, a, with nunchucks, you know. I discouraged him from doing that. In any case, ended up somebody, he, he ended up killing the guy, or he was complicit in killing the guy. Someone else sort of jumped into the fray with him. And my friend went to jail for 10 months. And uh, when he get out, got out, he came over to my house and said, I spent 10 months of my life in jail because of you. So, because I, I testified against him at the grand jury. So, yeah, so it was a dramatic episode in my life, you know, sort of seeing the harsh realities of the real world. Wow. And where should people look for that story? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to run in... Uh, so this happened in Portland, Oregon. So it's going to run in uh, Portland Monthly Magazine this fall. Where should people go to, to learn more about the stories that you've written in the past or, or might have might want to keep an eye on to see stuff that's coming up in the future? Well, I have a website, uh, BillDonahue.net. It's D-O-N-A-H-U-E. And, you know, I have a mailing list, which you could join from there. So I have a Twitter feed, at BillDonahue13. Well, great. Anything more you want to say? I think that's it. Uh, I I really appreciate you guys uh, doing this. I think it's it's awesome to sort of promote the culture of journalism in New Hampshire. You know. Yeah, that's the idea. Well, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, with our mission. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it, and thanks for all your interest and questions. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.
The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.